congratulations. You've discovered the Speech Uncensored podcast, and we are finishing a talk that we started on the previous episode with Sydney about inline speaking valves on the ventilated population. So here is Sydney to introduce herself. Yeah, so my name is Sydney. Uh, I am currently a speech therapist. Uh, I'm split between two different settings, an inpatient rehab as well as an acute setting hospital. Um, It is a uh, level one trauma center in the region here, so we do see some pretty complex patients. Um, And then I have another two years of experience um, in a long-term care unit um, where we worked pretty closely with both ventilators and uh, tracheostomy patients. Fasten your seatbelts because I hope you're ready to jump right back into where we left off with Sydney. Um, She's going to be getting back into the discussion about um, swallowing evaluations with the ventilated population. But yeah, there is, there's that conception that they can't eat and even, even without a valve on, I'll feed a patient. Mm-hmm. And that was something from the LTAC is they're very aggressive with eating and drinking because Good. think about, Good. I know exactly. Think <laughs> about all of those ALS or spinal cord patients. Those, like we talked about earlier, those C1 to C3 patients who continue eating out in the community. Yes, they're ventilator dependent, but yeah, they're going to, you know, baseball games or having hot dogs. And there's so much of that fear is when they're in the hospital, oh, I shouldn't feed them. They're very sick, but it does not necessarily mean that they aren't protecting their airway. Is it more difficult? Absolutely, because they have the ventilator that's forcing the breath while you're swallowing. So I would say timing is crucial. Crucial. So then there's where the cognitive portion comes into it. Are Mm. they able to kind of attend to that, make sure that they're cognizant of the breath? So sometimes, yeah. Anticipating it? Anticipating it, absolutely. So I'm not to say that everybody's appropriate. You know, you do obviously have to take your clinical judgment into, into consideration if the patient's alert enough or aware enough to to even be appropriate to eat anyways yeah but if i've got a a totally intact patient i'll feed them do it why not (laughs) i love it worst thing they can do is you know what if you're thinking you're aspirating obviously you're not going to feed them a cheeseburger first thing (laughs) if you do some water you still have access to suction it out Mm -hmm. if they do show pulmonary decline you can suction it out so what would that pulmonary decline look like where you'd be like, oh, okay, this is going south. We're going to stop now. I suspect yeah. you may be aspirating. What does that look like? I'm looking at O2 primarily. You know, all of those clinical indications that we learn in graduate school as far as the coughing and the choking. But, you know, there is that rate of silent aspirators in ventilators because of the pulmonary status. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the times I'm watching the O2. So what does it look like that would make you suspect aspiration? Those just kind of... Dips, I believe, um, research shows, I think it's a dip in 3 to 402 directly after the swallow. But also with these patients, safer rather than sorry in an LTAC setting because they are such medically fragile patients, I will do an instrumental. Okay. I'm not afraid to feed them, but I do want to know exactly what's going on with them later. Well, yeah, I'm not crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I want to go more into that instrumental, but I've got to backtrack because I hear a lot of chatter on the interwebs (laughs) about how people are like, O2 stats do not indicate Mm -hmm. aspiration has occurred. But you're working in a very specific population. Right. And that's all you honestly, let's say they're not tolerating the valve and you're still feeding them. Sometimes that's all you have to go off of. 
So again, safer rather than sorry in that population, go for an instrumental. Okay. All right, good. Now, so, do I use that? I just use that as part of the puzzle. I'm looking at it. I'm taking it into consideration. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's something that's going on. Not positive. I'm also looking, you know, multiple swallows, excursion, coughing, throat clearing, wet vocal quality, everything else that people would take into normal consideration for a clinical bedside. Okay. Good. Sorry. They just happen to be on a breathing tube, you know? <laughs> That's forcing their breath. That's forcing their breath. At a very timed and stately manner. Exactly. Okay, so what would that instrumental look like that you're going to do on a vent patient? We, in that setting, it's been most appropriate to do a fees. Mm -hmm. So, you know. On your uh, acute hospital floor. Yes. Okay. Yes. And what we did in the LTAC, but that was mainly for accessibility reasons. We did not have a radiology suite at that LTAC. So fees was kind of our only option. But have you done fees on a vent patient? Um, I have. I've done I mean, I'm sorry. I didn't mean fees. I meant... A video swallow? Yes. I personally have not. However, at our facility, so long as it's okay with the respiratory therapist and physical therapy says that they are mobile to leave their room, we are able to take the ventilator down to our radiology suite. I just personally have never done it. So um, by PT signing off, basically they're saying the patient can transfer to a wheelchair? Yes, Right. Okay. Get, right. So basically out of bed to the chair that we need to take them in to get them in the radiology suite in the radiology right. chair. RT thinks that they're stable enough to get down there without, you know, having, you know, X, Y, and Z complications. Interesting. Right. Okay. So then you'll just fees them in I'll their room. Them. I'll fees them. And see what's going on. Let's do it. Yeah. What have you seen? What are some of the things that you've seen? A lot of it's uh, coordination. As expected. It's just, it's, it's coordinating that breath with the swallow is really difficult for those people who... You know, as much as they come accustomed to having the ventilator and the timed breath, relearning to eat is really difficult. Yeah, because they haven't been using their swallow mechanism mm-hmm. for saliva. Precisely. And obviously any other food or drink for right. what, what might be an average amount of time that maybe they haven't eaten or drinking. <sighs> I guess it, I mean, obviously it's it can totally, vary incredibly. I know, it's totally patient-dependent. What might yeah. be the smallest amount of time possible? Like two weeks, one week that they haven't eaten? Or would it always be like at least a month or something? I've had patients who were a TBI, very low level, but they're young. So mm-hmm. they come in, doctors are kind of expecting the worst. They're still on the vent. They come in on the ventilator. Oh, wow, their pulmonary status, you know, they're, they're doing great. Maybe, you know, do the inline immediately. They transfer over, they're medically stable, and it's maybe been like a week or less, you know. They just, they become, while on the acute stage, because of their age and their rate of progress, they become stable much more quickly, and then they transfer to the LTAC because they were still on the vent, and then they transition well from there. Okay. So in an acute care setting, if a patient is on a vent and they're ready ready to be transitioned to the next level of care... Mm -hmm. They're medically stable, but still requiring ventilator support. Right. Mm -hmm. All ventilator patients will go to an LTAC. True or false? From my understanding, that is, from an insurance perspective, that's what they approve, is going to an LTAC. But I know um, at the hospital route now, the inpatient rehab unit is looking to become more inclined to take ventilator patients. So I think it is just kind of facility driven as far as, okay. you know, do, is nursing mm. in that particular unit, wherever they're going, mm-hmm. um, are they comfortable 
are they skilled or they yeah. experienced or can they learn? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's so true. It's the staff who's going to be caring to- exactly. for them 24-7. The can they who's care for the them? suctioning, precisely. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. If they need cough assist or anything like that, those little machines that suction help cough. That's awesome. Shake we, stuff loose. And we are totally at plug for the next episode that we're having Sydney on. We're gonna be <laughs> we're gonna be talking about cough assist, manual cough assist, and apparently you're gonna be sharing some of your knowledge about the uh, mechanical cough assist too. Yes. So that is the actual machine that's typically used by respiratory therapy. But so there's kind of what speech therapists can do, and then there's also the technology that RTs use to help with secretion management. Cool. I'm really looking forward to that one too. Mm. All right. Back to what is a successful first trial look like? They've um, tolerated the inline speaking valve mm-hmm. for five minutes just breathing. Mm-hmm. They've successfully accomplished your speech tasks, mm-hmm. and they can just have a little conversation with you. Mm-hmm. How long about does that take, or are you kind of timing it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So usually I'm looking at the clock as soon as that valve goes in, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to look at the clock as soon as it comes out. Um, just obviously for documentation purposes as well, um, being a good SLP. Um, that's the thing I'm terrible at is the clock watching and knowing exactly when things start and stop. Oh yeah. Well, this is a guesstimate. Um, (laughs) so typically I'll let that go for about 10 minutes and that's just collecting history, especially if I'm going into a bedside next, that's when you can kind of start asking questions about what was your previous diet like? Have you ever had any difficulty swallowing? Um, and kind of just use that time. So after about 15 minutes has passed, um, I always, I I do feel like a lot of those speaking valve usually go in conjunction with either a swallow or, um, with a cognitive valve. So that kind of just, and just see how long they can tolerate it until they start showing signs and symptoms of distress or pulmonary distress. What does that look like? So either a drop in O2 increased respiratory rate we were just having this discussion of like how fast is too fast so how fast is too fast for a vent well if they're on a vent mm-hmm. how are they it should be controlled yeah. so long as it's on the assist control as soon as you start getting into maybe like CPAP um, that's when the you know the patient is initiating a breath on their own sometimes that rate does increase okay um so but no you're absolutely correct if they're on that assist control then they are going to be having that controlled respiratory rate um but without it sometimes you know if we're looking for getting upwards in the 20s 30s that's when i kind of start to become concerned especially if it's in conjunction with you know the shortness of breath and you can tell they're again they're using their accessory muscles you can tell they're just working way harder um there's unfortunately unlike when you're just putting a speaking valve on the end of the tracheostomy when you listen for that plosion of air when you take it off there's not really that same plosion with an inline because you're of course you're gonna have a plosion you've got a big (laughs) machine puffing air through it um so you don't have that as much but okay wait remind me it's bad when you're taking a speaking valve off of a trach patient mm-hmm. to hear that plosion of air. Why is that? Correct. Because that means that um, not enough air is passing through the upper airway. It's collecting right around the tracheostomy. So their, their, their lungs and their expiratory muscles aren't strong enough to push the air through the speaking valve. It's not able to pass around the trach into the upper airway. Oh, that's right. Even though it's been deflated, the cuff has been deflated. Precisely. If the trach is too big mm-hmm. or for whatever reason they're... 
That's right. Just not tell. Yeah. So the cuff, even with it deflated, or even it's partially, if there's a little bit of air or whatnot left in it, sometimes just that that air is not going around the the side of the tracheostomy. So a lot of the times, um, on the acute side, they won't even request a speaking valve until it's a cuffless trach. But on a ventilator, obviously you, you, you don't have, have you a have, choice. You have to have a cuff. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Gosh, I'm learning so much. So, this is yeah. so great. So what was really nice about working the LTAC is knowing that everybody is familiar with people on ventilators. The RT's there. They're ready for it. They're familiar with, you know, if they're doing really well, the RT's kind of up to their discretion. They're like, oh, they're doing great. I'm going to walk away for 10 minutes and come back and see how they're still doing. There's kind of Wait, that. Wait, while, co- while they have an inline oh, yeah. speaking valve? Yeah, if everybody's <gasps> feeling comfortable, that they're doing scary. great. I know, no signs and symptoms of pulmonary compromise. We would walk away. Like right like, outside the door and hang out? Or oh, like absolutely. legit down pending, the hallway? Pending <laughs> on how, I mean, pending on how they're doing. If they're a little more tentative, you know, if they're a high risk, you know, diagnosis, like something like Guillain-Barre, like sometimes we're worried they might fatigue or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, they might wait a little closer, but yeah, they'll, they'll give it 10 minutes. I'll come back by, check it out. Um, what I found on the acute side, just because um, there is that lack of familiarity with the inline speaking valves, I'm usually the person who has to make that call. Um, I'll take it out and then we'll plan on a session a specific time for the next day if we, you know, see if we can increase that time or if we can complete education with RT to put it in in scheduled intervals, whatever they're comfortable with. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Uh-huh. All right, what, what does a failure look like? The opposite of a success, Leanne. <laughs> okay, well, yes, but I want the details, Sydney. Give me details. So that means that you're seeing that oxygen saturation plummet down. You're seeing that increased work of breathing. You're seeing that accessory muscle use, discomfort, and even that patient reporting, I can't breathe. Like, we'll take it off. they have it in, they're telling you, I yeah. can't breathe, but you're like, yeah. I mean, obviously you are, I but sure, you're just freaking out, just calm down. It is, <laughs> it's a total change in sensation when you're having air pass through that upper airway, and they just get that feeling, you know, there's also that additional resistance within the valve that they're very unfamiliar with, and mm. they, it's that trigger in the brain of that anxiety, I can't breathe. Okay. So sometimes if... If it's showing physical distress, you can tell, you know, that anxiety starts working up so much that I'm like, okay, I'm going to take it off and let them relax. Mm -hmm. I'll do that. But if I think it's something that, you know what, let's push through. Let's give it another minute. Your your oxygen saturation, you're looking fine. Everything's sitting pretty. Just see if we can kind of calm that breath down through verbal cues. Yes, just be like, you got this. You're doing great. Your body's getting enough oxygen. Mm -hmm. Continue mm-hmm. letting the machine breathe for you. Yep. You're, you're all, on, all great. Little, on a good track. Little quotes there. Right? I just mm-hmm. made them up. Oh, they were perfect. <laughs> they're great. <laughs> I'm really good at talking people off ledges. <laughs> uh-huh. And, and that's sometimes exactly what those patients need. Mm-hmm. So it is, again, partially clinical judgment, partially, oh, crap, their O2s at 60. Oh, you know, no, yeah. I haven't, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just that would be scary. looking at something that you're like, clearly they're in respiratory distress and having a hard time with this. Go ahead and pop it out. Yeah. So uh, like, um, how long have they tolerated it where you're like, oh, or, or I'm sorry, how long that the inline valve has been in and they're not tolerating? Like, has it been like under a minute? Like as soon as you put oh, it on, they start spazzing out? Yeah. Cuff deflation. Can't handle the cuff deflation. That's usually where you'll see it first. 
Um, or that's usually like, oh, we probably shouldn't even try this. <laughs> we um, are not moving forward. <laughs> like I said, when we talked about earlier, what is a, a contraindication of the mm. speaking valve in line? It's like, well, they're not tolerating cough deflation. Um, because that will be the first time that they're having air flow over their upper airways, over their vocal folds, out through their right mouth. Out through their mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Do people ever like sneeze because it tickles? Because that's the first time they've really had... Usually oh, it's coffee. with the cough deflation as that immediate cough response where it's, number one, probably because they have a crap ton of secretions in there. Mm. And they're just now sensing them? And they're just now feeling it because now they've got air passing by mm. it. So now they're all of a sudden they're feeling it. It's also they're becoming more mobile with the deflation of the cough. Um, yeah, big, big coughs when you put the speaking valve on or deflate the cough. Oh, okay. Definitely. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, all right. I feel like we've covered that. I feel good. Super. Mm-hmm. If you feel good, I feel good. Yeah. All right, Sydney. Excellent. What's the best thing about being an SLP that works with these complex patients? The best thing is, number one, as a speech therapist, you are using your brain hardcore to the point where it is sometimes exhausting putting all of the pieces together. And it can be stressful. I would say maybe kind of on the flip side of that, it's very stressful you don't want to cause any harm, you, but you also want to be aggressive with your patients and get them back to their normal or their new normal. Um, but from a less selfish perspective, um, you, you are working with patients and families who, for most of them, it's it, this is the worst. This is the worst they've ever felt. Yes. Um, the worst experience they've ever gone through with their family member. They're feeling probably like they might even lose that family member, like we've talked about. When mm-hmm. you're on a ventilator, you're not doing well from a respiratory standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're giving them some of their humanity back. You're giving them their voice back, their ability to have you know a snack or even just ice chips if that's something that they're able to tolerate. And it can be really rewarding from that end. Do you seek out those complex patients kind of for that like I little rush it. of like... I'm making like such great changes. Absolutely. Absolutely. You really do feel like you're making a difference. And I feel like that's any of us who go into this field, that's what we're really really looking for is that, is that sensation that you feel like you're making an impact. Yeah. And I'd say there's no bigger impact than taking somebody who's got no voice, got literally nothing Mm -hmm. and their family members can hear them again. Mm -hmm. Special. All the warm, fuzzy feelings. Oh, so many warm fuzzies. All right, now, oh, it's obviously. it's not a blanket. <laughs> I'm about mm-hmm. to wrap myself in it. Um, so now we have to talk about what's the worst thing about working with complex patients? As much as, so there's, you are dealing with people on the, in the worst situations of their lives, knowing that tensions and emotions are running high. Mm-hmm. Also, those difficult parts of, providing comfort, education, maybe talking them down if they're frustrated with what's going on. That's hard. It's never, those are those really crucial conversations that nobody really wants to have and they're difficult. You know, dealing with an angry patient or an angry angry family member is, is never easy for any therapist, but sometimes they, they happen more frequently when you're dealing with people who are really, really, really sick. complicated and really, yeah. really sick. So yeah. that, that is the flip side. The hardest conversations I've ever had to have is with somebody who has a, a well, a new normal um, that is so drastically different from what they've experienced before, and mm-hmm. they are struggling with that 
Coping. Coping. Denial. Mm, I don't know if less they deny than, less it. Denial. <laughs> less oh, denial. Is, yeah. It's yeah. almost like they, they understand what's happened and what's changed for them too much. And so a to large the, part of right. depression. Absolutely. And what's the point now? Yeah. And that that's the ones that like kind of I feel the deepest because Absolutely. Like I'll switch myself with them and like if I was in that place, wouldn't I feel that way? Oh, I'd be angry too. Okay. Like I I can identify with those emotions. Like I hear you. And then I don't know how to be supportive. I I can't right. placate that. I can't say right. like I've never been in your shoes. Yeah, I exactly. can't say, "You know what? You're right." This I mean, like sometimes I do. "You're right. This is this is awful. This is the worst." But literally, if they're like a new paraplegic and they're young, like super young, they had their whole life ahead of them. And now What's their new normal? Right, ventilator dependent. You know, we do. Mm-hmm. We did deal with those patients a lot at the LTAC. Is it's it's those young accidents who are experiencing that critical, you know, that pivotal moment. And this is their new normal, and this is our new life. So, yeah, hard. Basically, I think I'm finding out I need to like take some CEU courses on like technology. Absolutely, <laughs> we all do. It's tough stuff. All right. Well, I want to hear about a colleague who has had an impact on your practice. Can I do a shameless plug? Yeah, girl, go ahead. Um, so my supervisor at um, my last job, who is where I have learned all of this from, I actually had two supervisors there. Um, I'm going to say their like names. For your CF? Yes, for my CF. Two supervisors for your well, CF? No, Stop not gloating. Not you big boaster. CF supervisor. <laughs> they, were, they were the supervisors of the LTAC unit and for rehab. They were both speech therapists. And uh, Carrie Wintorst and uh, Cheryl Wagner. And they were... The most supportive, available, when working with these types of patients, you have to be confident and they instill every confidence in the world in you. You know what you're doing. You are trained to do this. You can, you know, these patients are hard, but you can do it. You know your stuff. Um, So really without having that confidence, it's hard to go into a room knowing that you've got, you know, I hope I don't screw this up. But when you have confidence and a great team behind you, it makes it way easier. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm all about mm-hmm. SLPs, supporting SLPs. Oh, they were absolutely Yay. incredible. So very lucky to start at a CF position with having that kind of support. So Awesome. Yeah. What were some things that they instilled in you kind of besides the confidence? like? Huge proponents for education. The entire facility that I was at was just making sure let's make you the best therapist that you can be. And besides having you know the personality and the drive and loving what you're doing you really have to have the knowledge and the the behind what you're doing and the rationale so always pushing you to read articles and even sometimes searching those out for you providing them in areas that they think that you could grow from I always found that to be a very constructive way to provide criticism like you're doing a great job here's some areas where you can grow here's some research to back up why you should do differently what you're doing now it's just great support. Um, are they hiring? Um, <laughs> I told them, I was like, if I ever come back to, I, I moved. That's why I left jobs because it really was a fantastic job. Um, that I would I would go back there in a heartbeat. It really was a fantastic atmosphere. So. I really love hearing about like yeah. that incredible supportive atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And education is so important. That's what I'm so it passionate is. about. That's what's exactly. driving this whole podcast. It's just education, education, education. How do you get it? Where do you get it? What is it like? And sometimes it's just sitting down with another SLP and having them share what they know. Talking it out. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, Oh, yeah. Earlier you mentioned that your current workplace isn't implementing the inline speaking valves Mm -hmm. as part of that weaning process for their patients on a vent. 
Why do you think that is? What's going on there? What I think it is, is mainly just an un, a lack of familiarity with the speaking valves. Is even with people in our field, who this is all we do, there's lack of familiarity with oh, it, yeah, right? Obviously, it's just, it's, you're speaking it's to very, one of them. It's a very niche piece of equipment and knowledge, and I feel like it's, especially when a lot of the the patients necessarily in acute are thought to be too sick to be appropriate, mm-hmm. kind of pushing for that service isn't yeah. pushed as heavily as it could because there are there's a lot of very sick patients and they don't want to compromise that we want people out of acute and moving on to the next step um so i do i think it's just lack of familiarity um and what i really hope going forward is just i mean like we talked about earlier it's just education if we could provide in services even discussions with the physicians about how important it can be to the weaning process mm-hmm. um i think really from the physician standpoint they're the ones who are going to be driving from the top down when speaking valves are used yeah so if we can get them on board i think we're on the route to having everybody talking on a vent Woo, girl. Let's make this a thing. Let's do it. (laughs) So what would that look like? Like, are you going to be the one at your facility, like, leading the charge, educating the doctors? Like, what does that look like? I would love to think so. Yeah? Right? All all in good good thoughts here. Um, (laughs) But I definitely think that would, I would love to contribute to that. I know it's something that's kind of on at least the speech department's radar is that this is an area of improvement that we can definitely work on. Um, And I would love to be a part of it. Like, you know, coming from your LTAC setting where it is part of the weaning process, yeah, everybody does it. Do. All the RT is part of it. Going to your your new location, your new setting, acute care, very large hospital mm-hmm. um, where some of the RTs don't even know about the mm-hmm. speaking valve for ventilation patients. Um, have you thought in your head, like, I just need to rope all these people into a room? Like, have you, like... Plan these things out in your head because that's what I do sometimes. I'm like, what would I do in this situation? And I think we're kind of getting the ball rolling on that. We have started with one in-service, but the tricky thing with RTs is that they are a 24-hour service. So you've got your day shift and you have your Mm. night shift. So it's how do you educate those night shift RTs on the basis of you've got a Monday through Friday 8 to 5 speech therapist? How do you contact those people? Do you have them read minutes do you send out an email do people actually read those do they have to do like a module online because that's what i thought of yeah something like that that's a starting point obviously they can't get all the information they need from an online at least as opening the door yeah so but those night shift rts they shift over to daytime shifts too right i think they're not strictly nights I, would, I know, like, nursing, they alternate. I mean, right. I don't know I don't know how their schedules work, but I just wonder, like, if you schedule it on a Tuesday, if Ashley or Betty's always on a night shift on Tuesdays, I don't know how that works. But I know that was something <clears> we were <throat> running into, is how do you educate all of them? Yes. Well, you, well, you start with some of them, and they will share that knowledge exactly. with other RTs, exactly. right? Exactly. Spread like the plague, man. <laughs> the good go. plague. The good plague. The good one. The speaking valve plague. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well, I think that's that everything. All right. So do you have any um, parting thoughts, things you want to share? Like, do you have a mantra, uh, your favorite quote, your words of wisdom? Um, I, and this is kind of how I practice, at least give it a try. I like that. Like, and that comes from dysphagia, speaking valves, at least give it a try. 
I know some of these things, they are, they're complex patients, they're scary, but you can't progress them forward unless you just, you just gotta start somewhere. I agree. I also believe there's a caveat there. Like, you can't just walk into a patient's room and be like, I'm gonna give this a shot. <laughs> I'm gonna just see what happens. You are absolutely correct. So there's just the, um, give it a shot using your best clinical judgment. How about that? Well, maybe like give it a shot with supervision if you've yeah. never done this before. Oh, absolutely. Okay. That's what I'm thinking Okay. Of. All right. Have, are you unfamiliar with this? I absolutely promote having a supervisor or somebody who knows more than you before you start doing something like this. So... I just mean from the patient. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, just from the patient's perspective, to move them forward. So you're you, you are something. you are providing um, words of wisdom to somebody who does have experience working with inline ventilators. Yeah. Or sorry, inline speaking valves for vent patients, um, or even just mm-hmm. with trach patients. You yeah. know, get in there. Mm-hmm. Also, always promote putting the cuff down. Deflating the cuff? Deflating the cuff. So yes. important. Before you do anything Please, with a cuffed patient. For the love of God, <laughs> deflate, deflate the cuff before you place the valve. That's all I have. Preach, sister. Preach. <laughs> that is only, that and one other thing are the only two things I remember from grad school Please about working with trach patients is like, deflate the cuff. Yes. And then the other one is never stand in front of an open stoma. Oh, Ever. Or uh, dip, dodge, duck, dive. Dip, dodge, duck, dive. Yes. That's our parting words right. of wisdom. If you're going to stand in front of an open stoma, prepared to duck, what is it? <laughs> duck, dodge, duck, dive. Duck, duck, duck. I know. I'd like know. say that 10 I, times. It's hard. It didn't come out right the second time. I can't even. So. All right. Sydney, you are an absolute blast and a world of wisdom and knowledge. Thank you for sharing it with me oh, and you. the rest of this listening world. So, all right, now we done. Say goodbye, Sydney. Goodbye. Remember to check speechuncensored.com for the show notes and leave feedback to help this podcast meet your SLP needs. It's also helpful to review the Speech Uncensored podcast on your listening platform and tell your friends in person and on social media to check us out. Remember friends, sharing is caring. Also, future episodes will cover life as an inpatient rehab SLP. Um, Another one will be about the 10 principles of neuroplasticity and how to incorporate that into your daily treatment plan. We'll also be talking about how to make a career as a PRN SLP. And I have another one on cough assist for the spinal cord injury patients and severe stroke patients. And that's just the material that I already have recorded that is awaiting editing and finishing touches. More topics to look forward to is that I'm lining up experts to discuss neurodegenerative diseases, the three most popular voice therapy modalities, topics within the head and neck cancer population, and what it's like to complete a speech and language assessment on a patient undergoing tumor resection. You heard me right. I'm sitting down with an SLP who participates in surgeries with patients who are undergoing awake craniotomies. I cannot tell you how excited I am to dive into that topic. It might be a seven-part series or something because I have a million questions. Namely, how do I get that job? 
And can I shadow her the next time she's scheduled? <laughs> so as you can see, there is no shortage of interesting topics coming your way on the Speech Uncensored podcast. So stay tuned and remember to review and share. It's my hope that this podcast inspires you to dig deeper into the topics that interest you and your practice benefits as a result. Thanks for listening.